If you got your Bible, turn to the book of Luke. Uh, we'll get to Luke chapter 18, but just some background so you kind of know who's talking to you and uh, some of my story. I was raised overseas, came back, uh, went to college, got a degree in business administration, met my wife there, uh, got an emphasis in accounting and started working as an accountant straight out of college. Um, I discovered fairly quickly that I had a pretty good gifting for it and started working my way up the ladder, uh, working in Europe, primarily in the Netherlands, uh, in Germany and in France. And then my wife was coming over with me. And uh, we were kind of on a good track. We had a nice house in La Jolla. Uh, we had a couple of really nice cars and uh, things were going well. We were set to kind of live the American dream and the Christian dream kind of coming together. And we weren't walking away from God at that time. We were active in our church. Uh, we were supporting at least five missionaries. We were part of the youth group teaching on a regular basis. And guys, I, I praise God to this day that God broke in on my small plans and changed my world. And I never got a missionary call. And I, I, I say this because I, I worry that sometimes uh, young people in Christian environments are waiting for this missionary call. And we never got a missionary call, my wife or I. We read our Bibles, we believed what it said, and we said, we're going until the door closes. And so that was huge for us that uh, we started reading passages like Matthew 28, uh, Romans 15, uh, Romans 10. How are they going to hear without somebody going to them? And the logical conclusion is they won't. They will go to a crisis eternity unless somebody goes. So we got challenged into that and we walked away from our jobs, uh, went into missionary training. And I'm a big proponent of missionary training. Like Johnny said at the beginning, uh, I'm president of Radius International. We train missionaries that are going to take the gospel to the last unreached language groups. We find that defining them as language groups rather than people groups is a lot more specific. And people groups kind of gets nebulous. There's different organizations that start to speak about uh, groups that I would definitely not define as unreached, but it gets this weird wonky definition to it. So language groups helps define that. And so we train North American graduates. You gotta have your bachelor's or master's, and then we will train you in a cross-cultural environment down in Mexico to take the gospel where it's never been before. It's a 10 month program. And so I came, uh, or I'm part of that right now, but we got a similar level of training heading uh, off to the mission field. And we were looking, I mean, we decided if we're gonna leave our jobs, we're gonna leave our future, we're gonna leave all this stuff. We were on track to retire in our mid thirties. We're gonna walk away from all that. We wanna go somewhere where we're gonna make a difference. We wanna take the gospel somewhere where it's never been before. And so we went uh, through the training process and we headed to the country of Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea has the most languages of any country on the face of the earth. You, Africa, India, China, any of those continents and countries, uh, they have less languages than Papua New Guinea. It's one of these unique anomalies because of its geography and because of some of the different factors that have kind of come into its last hundred years or so. And so we ended up going to Papua New Guinea. And we got there and we learned the language of the country. That's the national language of the country. And so we learned that. And then I'll never forget what happened. Uh, mission leadership came to us and they handed us a list. And on this list were seven people groups that had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. They don't make the list unless they ask for five consecutive years. And we were blown away and we're looking at this list and we're going, what would be the right thing to do here? And so we prayed about it with our teammates. And there was one uh, people group on there that had been asking for 12 years. 
Think about that for just half a second, 12 years asking for what we have readily available. And I, we just felt like we have to go to this place. And so we, uh, we asked the pilot of the mission or the plane that we had for the mission, if he would bring the plane around in a week, a uh, week later, he showed up and he gets out of the airplane when he landed on the tarmac at our little staging base there. And he says, guys, I got good news and bad news. The good news is it's a great flying day. The bad news is the weather uh, the night before where you guys wanted to go has been so bad. It rained all through the night that they've had six inches of rain and the airfield where I was gonna land is underwater. It's like three feet underwater. You're not going there today. What's your second choice? And so we pulled out our list and there was this people group on there called the Yembi Yembi people. And so we decided we're going to the Yembi. So we uh, scribbled out a note on a piece of paper because everything we'd heard about the Yembi was they're pretty dominant, hostile. They're pretty aggressive in your face and they didn't know we were coming. And so we scribbled out this note basically saying, hey, we're coming to your people group, please be kind. And we rolled it up and we stuck it in an empty water bottle, took off in the airplane, flew for about half an hour, got over their people group, the airplane turned on its side and we threw the water bottle out. Uh, we could see this crowd coming out of the jungle. Uh, they grabbed the water bottle, pulled the note out. We didn't know if they could read it or understand it. Uh, we kept going and we landed at another airfield and then we got in a motor canoe. Motor canoe is a canoe about 30 feet long uh, with an outboard motor on the back and we motor canoed for nine hours and we pulled into Yembi just as the sun was going down. And guys, I've gotten a lot of exciting greetings in my life, but I have never had a Yembi greeting to that point like that. What they do if they like you, if they don't like you, I won't tell you what they do. But anyways, if they like you, they take mud, they slam it into your face and they push it all the way down. Then they take diced up flower petals, whip those at your face and it sticks to the mud. And so now you're like this walking piece of potpourri. And so now we were beautiful. Now we were ready to come into the village. And so then they brought us into the village and we took a bunch of language samples. We stayed with them for three days, uh, a bunch of video because our wives weren't there, mission leadership wasn't there. And then we did the same thing on the way back out, uh, motor canoe, got the airplane, went back, uh, sat down with our wives, walked through everything that we uh, learned and kind of uh, saw during the trip. And then we called our home churches and we all prayed together and we felt like this is the place where we need to go. And so we moved in among the MBMB. We built our houses out of mostly their uh, materials. We had bark walls. Uh, we had a floor that was uh, mostly bark. We had a roof that was corrugated aluminum. So we would catch the water off of it. Then that would go to a water tank. And then we started the hard task of learning their language. If you're going to be effective in missions today, long-term, to know the language and the culture of the people that you're speaking to, to speak into their worldview. Most people don't realize this, but the dominant world religion is not Islam. It's not Catholicism. It's not Christianity. It's syncretism. It's the mixing of what they originally believed with an introduced religion because missionaries typically go too fast. So you get these two that are together. It's not the original and it's not the introduced. It's a mixture of the two. And to speak to what they knew, to speak to what they held to be their worldview, we had to know their language and culture. And so we dove into Yembi life. For that, uh, for our process, we had to know how to hunt pigs. In Yembi a boy changes into a man when he kills his first pig at night with a spear by himself. And so they came to us about two months into the process when we were learning language and culture. And they asked us, there was a guy from Nebraska, a guy from Minnesota and myself. And they asked us, hey, have you guys ever killed a pig? Well, the guy from Nebraska had like worked at a pig farm or something and shot one with a stun gun or I don't know what he did. But anyways, he he'd killed one. So he said, yeah, I've killed one. No, no, no. 
Have you killed one with a spear at night? No, I've never done that. And so they kind of gathered up and they came up with a name for us. They called us overgrown boys because we were these guys who had kids, but somehow we'd never killed a pig before. So we were still boys. And so that's what they called us until we went out enough times. We learned how to hunt. We learned how to throw a spear. There's no guns there, no bows and arrows. You've got these long 12 foot spears and you're throwing them at night. Uh, six foot two guys like myself don't sneak so well. And so we had to work on how we were going to do this. But all of this, learning their language, learning their culture, killing the pigs, our wives going fishing with them, learning how to work Sago, all of this was in preparation for when the gospel would come. And finally, we learned their language to full fluency. And we told them, guys, in the next moon, we're going to actually start the reason that we came here. And man, the whole village was pretty pumped because they knew that we were coming for some specific purpose. And so they built a house. They said, it's the talk that you're bringing. And again, they didn't know how th this was a very isolated people group. We had to develop an alphabet for them. We had to teach them how to read and write for the first time in their history in their own language and then translate the portions of the Bible that we were going to teach through. So all of this was preparatory work heading into the teaching. And we finally got to the day where we were going to start the actual teaching and nearly the entire village, about a thousand people turned out. And we didn't start in Matthew. We didn't start in Mark. We didn't start in Romans. We started in Genesis 1-1 to build the character of the God that you're teaching about, to talk about how good he is to mankind. Look at all the different foods. Us in the United States, we have one kind of banana. The Yembies, 14 different kinds, different kinds of fruit, fish, vegetables, bringing them all in to let them sample. Look at the goodness of God. Does God eat food? No, he doesn't eat food. Who did he make all this variety for? He made it for you. He made it for me. And to watch the Yembe start to fall in love with this God that they never knew before and to see how good he is to mankind. And then we get to Genesis chapter three. If people do not understand Genesis chapter three, the fall of mankind, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make no sense at all. They don't know what they're getting saved from. And so we got to Genesis chapter three. And what we would do is we would teach a passage and then we would act it out. And the acting it out, because these guys are concrete learners. This is the first time they're hearing this stuff. So we would teach and then they say, do, do it so we can see it. And so we'd act these things out. And so we taught on the fall of mankind and then we acted it out. And I was Satan. So I had like this black bed sheet and my coworker's wife, she's Eve. And we're walking along and we had this tree over there and we, uh, we hung some fruit off of it. Like we tied some fruit and we're walking along and I'm whispering to her, whispering loud enough so a thousand people can hear me. Eve, Eve, if you eat the fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be just like God. And she's looking and the Yembies can't stand it. Like, again, they're, they're yelling at her. They're, I mean, these are unsaved people. They're cursing her. Eve, you idiot. What are you doing? Look at your belly. Look at how full it is. How would you listen to this trickster? God's been so good to you. You foolishly. And then one of them starts getting up and my coworker's wife is reaching out to grab the fruit and they're pulling her hand back because they're into the story. They don't see fables and fairy tales. They see their ancestors. And what happens to them will trickle down all the way to the Yembies today. They see this line. And my coworker's wife reaches out, grabs the fruit, takes a bite. A thousand people go quiet. Guys, we kept teaching on the ramifications of the fall. What happens when it means from dust you came to dust you will return? What happens when women have pain in childbirth? Man, the implications of that, very real in those contexts. 
how you will eat by the sweat of your brow. You're going to work hard to actually provide food for your family. But there's a promise in Genesis chapter three. And there was a tree right by us. We went over and we pulled a branch out of the tree and we hung the branch up. And we said, just like Adam and Eve have broken out from God, look at the ramifications. And we watched this tree. We hung the branch up in the teaching house and the branches went down to leaves and leaves got darker and darker and they started to fall off the branch during the three months that we were teaching just like us but there's a promise that god will send one someday who has the power to put the branch back in the tree to make things right between god and man again that one will be coming someday and oh man i mean to watch the yembies listening to this tracking with the story we get to the next story the following week cain and abel and we start talking about Cain, and one of the guys in the crowd stands up, and the Yembies aren't like you guys. You guys, if we were in person, you guys probably listen really well, and you're quiet, you know the appropriate times to laugh, and all the other stuff. The Yembies, if they like what you're saying, they'll yell from anywhere, keep talking, keep talking, this talk is good to my belly. If they don't like what you're saying, they're going to yell from the back, hey, my ears are bleeding. This talk is horrible. They'll do that while you're teaching. So you know if you're flying or dying right off the bat. So they're back there. And one of them stands up and goes, wait, stop the talk, stop the talk. This one that you speak of, Cain, is he the one? Or are we waiting for another? And I said, what, what do you mean? And he says, you promised us there's someone coming who will put the branch back in the tree, who will make things right again. Is this one Cain? Is he the one? No, he's not the one. Okay, keep the talk going, keep the talk going. And he sits back down and everybody yells, you idiot, why did you say that? And then some of them were actually brave enough to tell him, good question, I thought the same thing. And guys, the cool part was every Old Testament character that we taught through from Cain to Moses to Abraham to David to Solomon, somebody stood up and asked the question, is he the one? Is he the one? They're waiting for the coming Redeemer. The Old Testament was having its effect. We're waiting for the one who will make all things right again. And finally, we told them we're getting to the talk. We've got about one more moon left of this talk. And next week, we're going to be stepping into the talk of the one. And we get to John chapter one. And John the, John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when he sees Jesus walking alongside the River Jordan. And about 15 YMBMB stand up and say, wait, 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 wait. Stop the talk. Stop the talk. Is he the one? Guys, it was one of the privileges of my life to say, yeah, he's the one. He's the one you've been waiting for. Oh, man. And I mean, the, the crowd is all excited. Everybody's yelling from the back. Stop the talk of John who dunks in water. Who cares about him? Tell us about the one who's walking along the Jordan. They're into this story and to build the character from then on of who this guy was. This Jesus who was the God man sent by God himself, who is somehow going to make things right. Guys, I don't have time to get into the whole details of the story, but teaching through Jesus' life and to see how he loved the poor, he loved the outcast, he loved the ones that are furthest away. And the Yembis felt this tie to him that somehow, if Jesus had been in their world, Jesus would have cared about them. Jesus would have sought out people like them. That's the character of this one. And to see the Yembis as they get closer and closer and Jesus in this head-on collision with the religious leaders and to see those things starting to come together, how this was going to work itself out. And finally, 
over four hours on the final day, April 28th, 2008, to present the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and to see a small band of Yembis come together and understand who this one was, how he had died for their sins and he had died in their place, and now they were made right with God again. That, my friends, is a privilege of a lifetime, something that, man, the rest of my life is kind of like the cherry on top of the cake to get to participate in that for the first time in the history of the world, this YMBMB people group has people who are now citizens of heaven, brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From that time on, we stayed for eight more years to disciple them, to teach them through the entire New Testament, and to see them brought into a strong church that has its own elders, its own deacons, and now, just in the last couple of years, its own missionaries, sending them out to other people groups around our neck of the woods there in Yembe I go back every year, have the privilege of seeing them participating in church services. I still have to send in my request, hey, can I teach in church? And then the elders, well, I guess we'll give you a chance. And so to see in some ways, in a non-paternalistic way, man, our children in the faith, walking with God to see the light of the gospel in this little corner of the jungle. It's one of the things that I, I will forever be thankful for the Lord that I traded in my smaller dreams for something bigger like that. So if you got your Bible, I want to talk today because I have a lot of people ask me, why do you see so few people heading into missions? Why is missions one of these things that it's a great idea, we love talking about it, but to actually see people give up their dreams to do this, that's a pretty rare thing. And so some guys will ask me, is it because they don't understand that people without the gospel that never have a chance to hear the gospel still go to a crisis eternity? Or is it because they haven't understood their Bibles? A lot of them aren't familiar with Matthew 28, Acts 1, those types of passages. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's more that people have their plans, and those plans tend to want to integrate God into their plans rather than God's plans supersede their plans, and their plans take second best. They take a back seat. I think that's where it's at. And I think this passage, Luke chapter 18, verse 18, speaks to this. And so I want to just touch on this. And hopefully you can read into this and look at your own life and see. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say everybody should be a missionary. That's the farthest thing I'm trying to say. What I am saying is we should evaluate our plans based off of what our father's passion is, what his desires are. And ours are subservient to that. And so this passage, Luke 18, 18, says this. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the guy says this, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So Jesus, there's other passages that we have that will kind of help us understand this, but Jesus is speaking to one, he's a wealthy guy, he's a young guy, and we know from this passage he's seeking. He is not on some left field track. He's actually asking the most important question in the world. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the cream of the crop. These are the type of people that you build movements around. You have them brought in as disciples. You make space for these types of people. And Jesus is going to ask a very penetrating question here. He's going to drive at the heart of something that I think is just right there for all of us. He says this, 
in the next verse, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And there's a common misunderstanding about this passage, that this passage is about money. This passage is not about money. It, there's a component of money in it, but this passage is about what is dearest to your heart. And Jesus puts his finger on the young man, and for him, it was money. And he puts his finger on it, and he says, I want that. Give me that, then come be my disciple. Guys, here's the honest truth. There are so many of us that want to give Jesus a part of my life, work towards being part of something where I can bring Jesus into my skills, my abilities. It, I mean, I, I briefly touched on it. You know what my skill is, my ability? I have a great ability with finances, especially international finances and working in Europe. You know how many times the Yembies asked me about my background in that corner of the jungle? You know how many times I got to use my financial gifts over there? Not very often and pretty slim. To buy into someone else's plans requires a dying to some of yours. Sometimes it works out that they work hand in hand, but sometimes it doesn't. Whose plans go first? Because Jesus is saying here, I will be first or I won't be around. He won't be second. He won't be third. He'll be first or he will be nothing at all. He's driving at what is controlling the young man's heart. Is he able to give up those things that he holds so tightly? And the following passage is pretty clear. It says this, when he had heard this, this is the young man, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Implication, Jesus, thanks, but no thanks. Thanks for the offer. You've asked for too much. You've gone too far. Guys, here's the deal. For a lot of you looking at potentially getting involved in full-time Christian ministry, getting involved in missions, it's never evil things that will sidetrack you from that. It's always good things. It's getting married to that guy, to that girl, who's just not that into missions. It's getting into that job that will take you four or five years down the track. It's getting into a position where missions will die a slow, quiet death in the corner, and no one will ask you about it because you're doing good things. And Jesus puts his finger on this young man's heart, and the young man says, you've asked for too much. And I wonder how many of us, if Jesus put his finger on a particular area in, my, in your life and said, I want that, would we be willing to give it up? The things that we're good at, the things that we're talented at, good things, God honoring things. And God says, give me even those. Are we willing to give those up? Because here's the deal. Jesus will be first or he won't have any part of it. He will be first in your life, or he won't. He will step out the back door. Guys, I remember one of the times that I read this to the Yembies, and the Yembies were, they had two reactions. Number one, Jesus didn't chase the guy down. Once the guy said, that's it, and he starts walking away, Jesus didn't track this guy down. 
wait, 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 we have a discipleship group for that. Wait, 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 we can, we can maybe work on this. We can bring him in and bring him along slowly. Once he walked away, he walked away, and we never hear anything more about him in the entire history of the scripture. He's gone. He's off the scene. We don't know what happened to him. That was the first most shocking thing. The second thing is that when I taught this story to the MBMs, you know what they started doing? They started laughing. They started laughing, giggling, and I'm going, oh my goodness, I have really taught this story wrong. I've missed something culturally here big time. And so we quieted them down. What are you laughing about? And they said, wait, 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 you've explained to us before what a wealthy person in that area in Judea, what a wealthy person had, right? They have like some clay pots. They got some white horses, maybe. Maybe they got some seafront property. He didn't even have Sago. And I'm just sitting there trying to figure this out. For the Yembis, their life is Sago. Sago is everything. So I would take guys out for translation checks to another city. They would fly in an airplane, first time in their life, scared out of their mind. They get an airplane to fly with me. After we're getting done with the translation check, we would take them out for dinner. And I'd take them to like a steak place where we'd get decent steak for the country or a chicken place. I mean, all the protein they could eat. And invariably, every time they would eat it, they would eat it and they go, this is so good if we only had sago with it. Sago is like this paste, these cakes. It's made out of a palm tree. They scrape the inside of a palm tree. Then the stuff that comes out of that sediment, they bake it in cakes. It tastes like Elmer's glue mixed with paper mache. Like it's just, it doesn't taste great. And so they would always sit there and they'd go, this is great food if we only had sago with it. Treating them for ice cream. I remember having some guys and they're eating ice cream for the first time in their life. And I mean, their teeth are lighting up because they've eaten betel nut their whole life. And they're like, it's so good if we only had Sago with it. And Sago, Sago is this huge thing in their culture. And so they're thinking of this guy and all the things that he has. And they go, he doesn't even have Sago. Why in the world would, you're telling me he could be Peter. He could be John. He could be any of those guys who were Jesus's followers. And he gave up that for clay pots and horses. And guys, here was the thing that blew me away. 2000 years of history and the rich young ruler looks like an idiot to a bunch of stone age people way out in the middle of the jungle, laughing at him for what he could have been, what he thought was valuable. He walked away from what? For what? That was this huge shocking revelation to the Yembies. And let's press it home. What will they say about you someday? What will your grandkids say about you? What will your great grandkids say about you? More importantly, what will the king say about you someday? You did what? You were on track to do and you gave it up for what? Because I worry sometimes that our Christian young people are living for clay pots and horses, clay pots and horses, and you get the privilege of representing the king. You get the privilege of walking away from smaller dreams to live for something bigger. Guys, I want to close. I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'll wrap our time up here. Uh, I when we were in Yembe Yembe, we presented the gospel. And two weeks after we had about 
maybe 50, 60 people that we think understood the gospel. We waited over time and we saw that this was true and they started uh, seeing some fruit in their life and we started seeing the church uh, come together and gather and then seeing these ones grow. But in that first two week period, it was pretty shaky. And so um, I was laying in bed one night and again, my house is up, it's built like their houses. So there's these huge posts. They're about, I don't know, two and a half feet in diameter and they're up eight feet in the air. And the Yembies helped me build my house. So they know, okay, this is where they make their food that you could walk underneath my house. And so they'd look up and they'd know, okay, this is where they eat their food. This is where they sleep at night. This is where they gather in the middle of the day that kind of thing. And so they had this long pole that they hid in the grass. I found this pole and destroyed it like 10 times, but it's the jungle. They just got another one and they knew, okay, this is where he sleeps at night. And this is right about where his head is. And they would take the pole and they'd go, wah, wah. The Yembies are night owls. They like to stay up till two, three o'clock at night. And so sure enough, two weeks after we present the gospel, I'm laying in bed at night and man, it feels like Armageddon. I mean, boom, this pole hits the bottom side of the floor and you come off the ground just a little bit. And I go to the window and I'm like, who is it? And it's a typical greeting. It's me. It's me. I know it's you. What's your name? And he yells out his name and it's one of my tribal fathers. We got adopted into clans. And so he's, I call him father in the tribe. And he, uh, he doesn't show up for no reason. He's my father, I need to show him respect. And so, and I, we also think he was a believer at that point. And so I grab my flashlight, walk outside, standing there, and uh, I start looking at who's there. There's about seven people there. And in Yembe Yembe, it's really rude to shine your flashlight on people's faces. It ruins their night vision. So you shine it on their feet and they can, believe it or not, they can rep recognize everybody by their feet. A thousand people and they'll go, oh, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. I have no clue. They can obviously recognize my feet, but I'm shining on their feet and I can't figure out who it is. And so I'm inching the flashlight up just a little bit and I see their shorts and I'm like, okay, I recognize those shorts. Yeah, I recognize that kneecap. And so I'm getting an idea. And there's seven believers, people that we understood at that time to know who Christ was and how he'd reconciled them to the Father. And so we, uh, I'm sitting there, I'm like, guys, what's going on? Did somebody get bit by a snake? Did something happen? Uh, is something happening in the tribe? All of that kind of stuff. And they're, no, 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 no emergencies. And I said, what is it? And they said, we want to know when we're going. I said, what do you mean? two o'clock in the morning going where when are we going to the sister village just across the mountains who speaks our same language who still rests in darkness when are we going to that place because if what the book says is true they're going to the place of fire right i said yeah yeah the, the book is true and the book says they're going to the place of fire that's true so when are we going Will it be next week or will it be the week after? When are we going to our sister village? Guys, two weeks old in the faith. When are we going? I've had, <clears throat> I've had one uh, church and two wealthy businessmen offer to fly a group of the MBMB elders and their wives over for their missions conference. And I've said no uh, to each time. I'll never do it, not, not in a million years, for two reasons. Number one, uh, it would blow the Yembe's world apart. It would, it would be just mind-blowing for them to cross the Pacific and land in the United States and all that. That would be too much for them. And then number two, I usually tell them, and I told the, the two businessmen this, 
you don't know what you're asking for. These are the same people who, when we were teaching and still today, man, if you're teaching and your talk doesn't line up with where they understand the scriptures to be, they'll start yelling from the background, enough, enough, you're starting to go left, your canoe is starting to turn. Those are the people that you want to invite over here, because I think what would happen is this, they get up in front of our churches, the church where they're going to be speaking at, and they'd say, you've had this talk for how long? How many years? How many years have you been saved? When are you going? When are you going? What more light do you need? And I don't think it would go too well because we're not used to being talked at on that level by people that maybe we wouldn't see as our equals, equals in the faith for sure. Guys, I would press that to you. What are you doing with your life? You can't live for the glory of God and your glory at the same time. What will you do with the days that God has given you? What will you live for? What will be the thing that people and that the king remember about you? Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for being a missionary God. Thank you for sending your son who left the best home, who left the best job, who left the best family to come down to live with fallen mankind, to give of himself the entire full measure, to give his life, to eat like us, to drink like us, to learn our language, to live among us. You are the missionary God and we praise you for it. And we thank you that we are free. And in our language today, we have the light of the gospel. Lord, I pray for the young ones that are listening to this, uh, that are thinking about what they will do with their life. Lord, I pray that your desires, your passions, the things that you care about would be deepest in their mind. Help them not to settle for lesser gods. Help them not to settle for lesser dreams. Lord, help them to choose things that will be glorifying to you, not only in this day, but in ages to come. Thank you for them. We pray that they would be men and women of courage. Thank you for your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And thank you for the opportunity to speak to these ones. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.